Welcome to another episode of On the Issues with Alain Benmire. Today's guest is William Rosenberg, professor of political science at Drexel University. Dr. Rosenberg recently served as an international expert for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, assisting a Balkan country's government in the training of public administrators in the area of anti-corruption. In this episode, Drs. Bamir and Rosenberg discuss corruption in the Balkans and policies to combat this behavior. I want to thank you again for taking the time. Sure, it's, really it's my pleasure. Wonderful, and I enjoyed very much our conversation mm-hmm. before. So we'll take it from there. Okay. <laughs> I know that you have had uh, extensive experience in the Balkans, and we talked a little bit about uh, the corruption there. And what we see today, and I said the six Balkan states that we're talking mm-hmm. about, uh, it's in the middle of uh, basically, um, I want to squeeze between the three basic, basically major powers. They have Turkey on the one hand, one side, you have Russia on the other side, and then of course the EU, which is, uh, they're all the Balkan states are flirting with the EU. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, all, we know, we speak, we're also talking about the endemic corruption throughout these countries with, with their aspiration to become a member of the EU. Where do you see that going? And, and what, what is going to take the extent of the corruption uh, that is taking place within the government itself, within the private institutions, the relationship between the two sides, the bribes are taking place all over? Where do, how do you see that? Can, can, can that be cleaned up, well, given the reality that you very well know as far as the Balkans? So I, I would say, first of all, we have to recognize that there's not necessarily a um, singular form of corruption that happens just in that region. It happens all over the world. Yeah. And what's also really remarkable is the type of corruption that happens in the Balkans same types of activities happen all over the world. So um, that's number one. The, se- the second thing is that I think there's almost this relationship that exists uh, between uh, activities to sort of prevent corruption and the corrupt activities that people are doing. So the people that are most in position to clean up the corruption are the ones that are often involved in the corruption. Yeah. So, in a sense, they would be cutting off their own food chain, and that's going to be rather hard. The other thing is, is that I think what drives a lot of this issue about corruption is that people from outside of the region don't care much if it doesn't impact them. So, a lot of Western nations may not be so concerned about what happens in the Balkans if they're not engaged in commerce or they're not engaged in security arrangements and things like that. But when you want to try and integrate, which is, I think, really what your question is about, and bring these countries into something like the EU, then it becomes much more critical that there's sort of standards of practice and behavior Mm -hmm. that everyone's going to abide by, that everyone can rely on the fact that if you're going to do a financial transaction, it's going to be honored on both ends. If there's a delivery of product, the actual product arrives and it's in the state that it's supposed to be. And that's where there becomes a rub, okay? Because uh, on the one hand, the individuals or the nation states that have corrupt practices 
are trying to get the best opportunities they can get, even if it's not necessarily above board. On the other end, the businesses and the governments on the other end of the exchange, if we think of it as an exchange, they're trying to make sure that they're getting their side of the deal in a fair way. So on the one hand, we find a lot of times the external countries or external organizations are trying to impose standards on countries to make sure they follow certain practices. And on the other hand, the governments in the regions where corruption is sort of uh, a little bit rampant and you're trying to control it, they have to try and adjust to that. I think the, the mere fact that there's engagement between international organizations and other nations with nations which, if we think about Transparency International, which I'm sure your audiences are somewhat familiar with, when the countries are below 50 on the score, zero is mm -hmm. the absolute worst. Mm -hmm. 100 is the best. There aren't any countries that are zero, though, and there are no countries that are 100. Uh, and just for your listeners, you know, the United States is in the mid-80s. So we're not in the United States all the way up at 100 either. I think we're ranked number 18. Uh, uh, yeah. um, so the, the point, and though... 18, I mean 81. I think it was 18. 18 in terms from the top. From the so, top, yeah. So, from the top. so yeah. our number yeah. is about 84 84, or that's so, right. That's why so, 81, 82. Right. Yeah. So the idea, though, is, is that just the mere exchange of, let's say, a Germany or a France or a Great Britain doing work with um, a country in the Balkans is going to be probably a positive for the Balkans because they're going to get exposed to uh, accounting practices and rules of engagement and things like that that they may not necessarily have as much familiarity with and don't necessarily have to comply in the same ways. At the same time, the countries that are trying to work with areas that are more corrupt have to be careful because they can get taken advantage of. So that's why we see so many international organizations, and those include things like the World Bank or the EU or OSCE, all trying to promote activities that are going to reduce corruption. But it's a it's a heavy lift, okay? Because you're really going against the culture, really, is it's what just, I think yeah, of, of an area. And I mean, it goes. Uh, you know, we can go about this discussion a lot of ways, but it goes from being able to get an exam at a university where you have to pay yeah, money yeah. to the professor yeah, yeah. Uh, to grade it, or yeah. if you want a doctor's appointment, you have to uh, essentially bribe the the, the, the receptionist to put you on the calendar. And those are just the ways of life. Um, you know, just as a, 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 you know, we can, we can talk about any no, of no, these things it, that you're it interested is, in. It is endemic. I mean, it you know, covers all strategies of life mm -hmm. there. It's not just up on the top. Mm -hmm. The question is, how do you go about it in terms of change? Do you, you know, it, in, that, in this particular case, I think it's going to have to come from the top. Not to speak, of course, the role of private organizations, uh, you know, uh, all of these are, that need to refocus, some of them at least focus on what... But one point is that, and we have, I mentioned earlier, Turkey and Russia. For Turkey, for example, maintaining corruption or utilizing the corrupt government mm -hmm. in order to advance their interest in these countries, 
and these uh, with the Albania or Kosovo are complying because they're getting some benefit, that is the, the, the government itself, right. from that. And so, uh, to what extent do you think they are torn between what they are, you know, and what they're getting from Turkey, what they're getting from Russia, for example, Serbia, versus what they sh expect to happen if they end up joining the, the, the EU? So, they are, they are, I think, right now torn in between, not necessarily willingly. That is their reality. Where do you, do you see that change? Where well, is the change going to come from? I think it's really an interesting question because what you're really doing is you're really talking about the very nature of politics, okay? Yeah. That the leaders of a country have to judge what the net gain is going to be for themselves exactly. as an individual politician, uh, what, the, what the gain is going to be for their political class of people that are along with them and help support them, and also what the impact is going to be on the everyday person, the citizens of the country. And those three groups may not align really well. Exactly. Okay? So exactly. what happens is, that that was my point, is that there may be some conflicts of interest uh, that are playing out between the leaders, the political class, and, and, and the general public. And all of them have had these various arrangements for forever. I mean, it's not a, it's not a new thing. No. So the, the real question is, how do they make that calculation? And my, without talking about a particular country, but my, my experience has been that you sometimes find political leaders that very much want to do the right thing, that want to change the trajectory of how society operates. But they also have to operate within the sphere of the other politicians that they have to engage with. So they may have to do deals or make arrangements with other politicians who are corrupt, even though they want to reject that corruption to move the ball, to move it in a way that's going to get the country at a place where they think it's going to benefit. But one of the big pluses, I think, is something that, maybe doesn't come up that often in discussions about corruption, but globalization. Okay, because with globalization, things are not just transactions with the, the local business down the road or even in the country that's 40 miles away, that it could be with countries anywhere in the world. And when you start getting into those transactions, in other words, for some of these Balkan countries, you mentioned Russia and you mentioned uh, Turkey. Those are obviously big players. But there's also, you know, China, okay? Uh, you know, I know that when I need some little gadget for my technology for my computer or something, I go on Amazon and I buy it and a couple of days later it gets delivered with this address in China. Well, I have to have the confidence that if I give them my credit card, the product gets sent to me and it's what it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't really go knock on the, the storefront and say, where's my product? Well, that same kind of analogy has to be kind of a sense of understanding about how transactions are going to work, how job arrangements are going to work, employment practices are going to work. You know, we have a lot of... Um, 
laws that are sort of more global in nature, like the the, the British uh, law about uh, anti-corruption and the Federal Corrupt Practices Act in the United States that basically mandates that companies can't provide bribes to businesses. Well, you know, it's a little bit of a problem when you go in as a company and you want to do business and the only way you're going to get the contract is to give a bribe. But it's illegal to do that activity from your own nation state's set of rules. So there has to be sort of a probably an evolutionary thing. It's not going to be like a snap of the fingers. That's obviously not going to happen. The, we go back to the Balkans, though. What, what do we have there? And if it's, it seems to me, and please correct me if you think my assumption is wrong, it seems to me that the change, contrary to what I just basically suggested to see our reaction to it, the change is going to be, it cannot happen from top to bottom. Right. It's going to have to be a different kind of movement, more... Mm -hmm of a public you know, national movement, a right. movement that's going to say enough is enough, mm -hmm. we cannot continue to live. A perfect example is that I cannot get my degree unless I bribe the professor. Mm -hmm. so, so everyone seemed to be affected. Let me just corruption. interrupt you for a second. I'm a professor, so I'm a little sensitive to that. The idea is that they're not necessarily bribing the professor. They're paying the professor a fee to grade their exam because the university doesn't pay the professor enough, the, enough. salary. Yeah. So the only way yeah. that the professor yeah. can survive yeah. is to get what you termed a bribe, but a fee, to be able to well, do that. Yeah, yeah, but to me, to me, it's, it's when you pay to get something which is, which is supposed to be you getting it because you are a student right. without paying for mm -hmm. it. Uh, I call it a bribe, you right. call it a fee, whatever we call it. The problem is the, is this problem. So. Do you, what is going to take to have this kind of national movement, grassroots movement, that is going to try to say, in, you know, we need change? Do you feel this is, that any of the Balkan states have, have the prospect of having this kind of national grassroots movement? I think, it, to, to take I, I think it's a very difficult challenge. One of the, the, the ideas that I had when I was... Uh, uh, doing some consulting on anti-corruption is maybe we needed to start with the youth, okay? Yes. Because if you start with young children and you teach them sort of appropriate behaviors, as they get older, they might model those behaviors. And in fact, uh, a lot of countries now are going to the practice of training their public officials in anti-corruption practices. But those trainings are a couple of days long, and they've lived decades as a person living in a corrupt environment. Right. So the, the best example I can give you uh, was something that happened in that region where I was thinking, well, maybe if we taught young children appropriate behavior, that would happen. So when my children were young, I used to always say, make sure you buckle up, put your seatbelt on in the car. And what used to happen was they said, oh, dad's saying put on your seatbelt, and they'd click it. And then they would go to me, but dad, your seatbelt isn't on. Put your seatbelt <laughs> on. So they're, in effect, telling me the behavior that I'm trying to model with exactly. them. Exactly, yes. But yes. what was remarkable was I was in a country in that region, and a young man agreed to sort of be my guide for the night with his girlfriend. And we got into his nice car, and I noticed that I put my seatbelt on, and all of a sudden I heard the beep that you hear in the car of his seatbelt not being in and he goes oh, oh and he reaches up and he had bought the little metal clip 
that is on the end of a seatbelt. Uh-huh. Just to and put he did, it in. Just to cl- and put it in, but he didn't wear the seatbelt. So, <laughs> so, so, so it's so endemic uh-huh. to sort of like not playing by the rules uh-huh. that on the street corners, they sell the clip when you would think that the person would just put their seatbelt on, but they didn't want to do that. So the question is, how do you go about sort of correcting that behavior? One is that you could make more vigorous enforcement by police to, to make sure. But the problem is the police itself. The police are often going to be also are also going to be dealing but, with. But going bribes. back to your to your you know starting with the youth, which I think I think is a, it's, it's a critically important. To what extent do you, do you see this happening throughout the Balkans? Which country is actually pursuing that more effectively than others? In I, terms of I'm not really familiar with massive public persuasive campaigns directed at youth. I think what I have noticed, uh, which is a positive sign, I, th- I believe it's called the, the, the Balkan Institute, the West Balkan Institute, which is an which is a educational organization that trains people in anti-corruption behaviors. And it's kind of like a graduate level seminar program. And a lot of the countries in the region send their public officials to go get training because they don't necessarily have that training in those countries. Uh-huh. So that's a, that's a very promising activity. There's also a number of different NGOs that are in place that provide uh, online training and provide actual trainers that go into uh, a particular country and teach sort of appropriate sort of uh, policies and procedures that are going to reduce corruption. Mm-hmm. But to some extent, even there, there's a problem. Because when you talk about public officials, okay, the definition of public official is very vague. So some places they define public officials as the people who work in the bureaucracy, right? But that does not include people in the legislature, uh-huh. It does not include judges. So what happens is that while there may be a move to train people in sort of uh, anti-corruption work, it's not uniform to all the people who could easily fall prey or are actively involved in corruption. So my point is, is that maybe it needs, first of all, to be among the youth, to be part of the educational curriculum going through schools, but also once the people get in the bureaucracy to train them, but also to train the staffs and train legislators so they know how they are supposed to operate and how they're not supposed to take bribes and things like that. Yeah, but the trainers, who are are they? They, If they come from, if they are are corrupt themselves, we got a problem that is you're going to have to have trainers who are actually being trained before. Well, that, that is an issue, and that's one of the reasons why, for yeah. example, I was talking about uh, the Balkan Institute, which yeah. was a regional, so it wasn't a, it wasn't a nation state doing it. It was people from many countries coming together. But a lot of international organizations also do training as well. They, they bring people in that aren't necessarily locals, but have expertise in anti-corruption work to provide training. There are, I, you know, I've witnessed uh, software programs that were developed by uh, to not be named international organization um, that made uh, 
computer programs that you could put in a disc and put it into a computer and go through and watch videos mm -hmm. and take tests mm -hmm. and so forth. And they had them sitting in an office. They didn't actually get used. So the, it has to be sort of a, a national will mm -hmm. and maybe, you know, the holding out of uh, or the dangling of EU membership could drive some of these countries to sort of embrace this more. But at the same time, there's going to be a lot of uh, resistance to change the ways in which politics and society have operated for 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 a long yeah, time. Yeah, you mentioned the point just now the dangling the EU membership, which is conducive to some extent. What about? I mean, to your knowledge, do you know if the EU itself involved in providing that kind of training, starting with youth, given the fact that all of the that the EU would like to to get all of the key, these six countries right. to become member of the EU. So they have a vested interest in... Well, I think they do provide training, but they also have certain standards. In other words, when the countries want to join the EU, they have to have, for example, a banking system that meets international standards. Okay, And if it doesn't, then they're not going to get admission. So what happens is, that's what I was talking about, of, of the, the rubbing of different levels of... Of countries in terms of their knowledge, expertise, and the way they operate. So that just the experience, for example, of going to a meeting where someone from an external group like the EU or some other group um, says, these are the standards that we expect that everyone follows. That may be almost the first time they get exposed to those accounting principles or those international standards. They may have heard of them, they may have talked about them, but they're actually seeing them on a PowerPoint presentation with colleagues, and they then have a degree of professionalization associated with it. So, you know, in the United States, for example, we have continuing uh, education credits where uh, lawyers go and they continually right, right, get right, upgraded in terms right. of their skills and accountants. Well, that professional standardization and that professional esprit de corps is really important to getting everyone to sort of meet the expectation of yeah. what's necessary. That's the kind of activity yeah. that has to happen, for example, in the Balkans. And I think it is happening, but it's just very slow because at the same time, you're having all this historical tradition and pressure to go perhaps in a different way. And it's hard to give up that food chain for a lot of people. Yeah, a couple of things. You know, you mentioned that they actually they go and get training in a different country, not necessarily in their own own country. Or it could be online. As or well. it could be online, and I, I'm not sure that is as effective if you have as someone young fellow being trained in his own country. It mm -hmm. probably will have different, more positive effect. But there's another thing, in, in, as far as the uh, introdu the introduction of courses, both in even middle school, high school, certainly university level, that deal with ethics. Mm -hmm. Do they have that tree of knowledge in the Balkans, specific courses that teach students ethics, work ethics, uh, social ethics, whatever? I can't honestly answer that question. My sense is no. Um, you know, when I met with a, a law professor, for example, who was not necessarily teaching law like in the United States at the postgraduate you know, level like an attorney in the United States, but the curriculum of a law that might be undergraduate level, that it, 
was not built into the the curriculum okay and part of that is again sort of the the cultural and intellectual heritage of the academic environment in that country in some ways it may be heresy to talk about you know uh anti-corruption with college students who are then going to go think about this they're going to graduate from college they're going to learn these practices that they should be doing they get their first job they walk into the office and all of a sudden they're talking about okay you're responsible for um ordering the products we need to run the office and it says oh that's great we'll send out an rfp we'll put it out to bid and we'll take the best quality for the lowest price and then their supervisor says, no, that's not how we do it here. We call Jonathan's nephew, who's got the supply store, who has always given us the stuff, and always gives us a good price. So just let him know what you need. Well, that person who got hired right out of college that's trying to do the right thing, what they learned about in their curriculum, is sort of low person on the totem pole. So they're not necessarily in a position to buck what their supervisors are telling them is the standard practice of the office. Then the question comes in, how do you break through the catch-22? I mean, this is, this is what we are faced. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I'd like to see you and me and people like us want to see change for the better in these countries. And right. Now, and, they, and they describe perfectly the catch-22. But to what extent you can teach that student Expect this that the student expects exactly your scenario you just right. suggested. That look, you're going to be seeking for a job, and probably this is what you're going to face. Mm -hmm. And also make sure that they understand how you, how would they be able to resist. Now, do you feel again? I'm just raising the question that is part of the training will be resisting corruption. I think and, that that you make a really interesting question, and that's sort of the. The, the balancing act that takes place. Yeah. Even if the person received the training, are they going to understand how to overcome the resistance to what they're trying to practice? And I guess I would say two things about that. One is something I already mentioned before, which has to do with the professionalization of various disciplines. So it might be like in the United States, the American um, uh, society that deals with public administration or an accounting organization or a law organization that has part of their association sort of norms and standards of best practice. So when you enter that type of career, you're constantly, not just depending upon what you learned in school, but you're constantly getting that reinforced in terms of your professional development. The other thing I can tell you is that as a professor in the United States, uh, every year I have to go through training, which is online, that deals with issues, for example, like sexual harassment, mm -hmm. but also conflict of interest. So what happens is I have to get recertified every year, and it takes maybe an hour and a half or two hours. And, you know, I, I look at it and I say, on the one hand, you know, I've been teaching at the university for decades. I have no uh, challenges about my ethical practices in terms of dealing with students or with anyone else. But what happens is it's just part of the standard that you have to go through. So yeah. if that was something that was put into place in terms of some of these corrupt practices in, let's say, the Balkans, that would be a very positive step. The problem is, is you have to have the buy-in 
by the political leaders to say, this is what we're going to do. Because in a sense, they're going to have to be willing to push the needle to say, we're going to, we're going to work very consciously, uh, conscientiously to, to, to wipe out various forms of corruption. It's not just one, there's a whole slew of them. Okay. But, but by systematically trying to reduce the corruption, but that's where you also have to sort of deal with leadership. So that to the extent to which you can exert um, sort of an impactful sort of policy on leaders to put in place, for example, these trainings, and to the extent to which you could uh, influence professional organizations to do the same thing is where you're probably going to get pretty good buy-in. But at the same time, I think you're right. We need to have, starting in grade school through high school and into college, curriculum that talks about these various aspects. Now, one of the things that we've talked about prior to this interview is at one point I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe religion could be an answer to this. uh, That if people were, you know, a lot of the countries have diminished religion and, and religiosity. Maybe if religion was more present, they would learn the golden rule and they would learn about not stealing from a religious standpoint. But the research shows that that's not the case. Oh, so, in fact, sometimes on the contrary. In yeah. fact, religion become a corrupting source. Right. So you have, to be care- you, have to, you have to be careful what you think the solution will yeah. be. So here, here you know, again, we're going back to where almost we started. Now, who can put the pressure? Who has the lever for change? And uh, we have to look at the interests of the, of the countries involved. And we'll get back to our Balkan situation. Who has the lever of change? If the, the political elite is corrupt, and, they, and any change coming from the bottom, they, you're going to need, they are eventually, they're going to be faced with the political elite who will have to agree and move and encourage right. the change. And that is based on your description, which I fully agree with. Probably is not going to happen. Well, anytime soon. That's why my one of my points uh, a few moments ago was the issue about globalization. So the yeah, more, but, the, but may, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you. But the right. globalization, however, is not filtering down throughout the you know you know from that is not happening. It didn't happen yet, at least not in the Balkans. Well, what I what I what I I have a sense. My own personal sense is that globalization is a long-term impactful process that maybe hasn't happened yet. But, you know, when you go to various parts of the world, including the Balkans, every young person is sitting around with a smartphone and they're sending emails and they're watching social media and they're texting so that people are more engaged beyond just their own communities. True. If you talk about it long, long term, I certainly will agree with you. The more they see how other places operate and the more they have a desire to be in an environment that has those types of benefits, they're going to be more receptive to want to agree to perhaps practices that are sort of pushing corruption to the side. you know, it used to be the the case, and I think it's probably not as great anymore, but it used to be that people in other parts of the world would see American films and they would look at it as sort of the 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 the, the golden streets and the beautiful homes and 
why wouldn't you want to aspire to that way of life? And it became sort of like the golden door coming into the United States uh, and working towards that aspiration. Now there's obviously not so much of that with, you know, with, with some countries wanting to reject sort of the way Western governments operate and so forth and corporations. But the idea is that people get exposed to things beyond their own individual families, communities, and even nations so they can see in a broader way what goes on. And I think that aspect of globalization, just to be able to buy a product on some type of international market or to read a book or to see a film or to be part of an organization, that's where I think that the change really is going to be driven. Yeah, I mean, that's changing. But on the other hand, there is another uh, another phenomenon which is on the rise, the, the Trump phenomenon. Right. And you see that in Poland, you see this in Hungary. So what these young people are looking at that country, you're talking about globalization, and they look at a president like a Trump and say, he is as corrupt as anything anyone can be. Right. And that's what they are seeing. So they are seeing... So the aspiration to come, like exactly what you mentioned, to coming to America. Well, yeah, well I guess what I, would, <laughs> what I would suggest to you is that they're also seeing uh, not only the corrupt practices perhaps that the President of the United States is doing, but also the reaction of citizens to that true. corrupt practices. True, true. So, uh, you know, I mean, the, the picture about those people that are pushing for various reforms on President Trump's behavior or certain businesses' behavior is also a modeling effect. So it's not like everyone in the United States is accepting exactly. the, the corrupt practices. So yeah. that is also a, a learning moment. A learning I, I fully agree with you, and that's a very important point that you are making. Now let's, let's see if we can translate that to the Balkan state mm -hmm. to some extent. That is, uh, they, they can see the corruption of the government but is there the movement, the people, because there is much, much more limited. Here we have total freedom to oppose, and nobody's going to put me in jail right. if I'm saying anything about the president. In these countries, they don't have that luxury. Mm -hmm. is, they can see that here the public can actually can resist, can speak out, can say they can condemn the president mm -hmm. it's, and, and they can learn from it. This is possible. Mm -hmm. The question is, how do we make it possible in the Balkan state? What, that is going to be an entirely different... Uh, well, there's, I guess from a communication standpoint, yeah. there's two ways that this messaging happens. One is the message to the public, and the other is the message from the public. So there's, unless the regime is going to turn off the pipeline, so they're not going to let messages come in, like China has done in the past in some other countries, um, then the people in those countries are still going to be able to see through social media uh, and through websites and postings material. Uh, so that's going to be of, a, of an enlightening function and an educational function. On the other hand, the point that you're bringing up is, are they free to express themselves? Well, that's a bigger issue because what happens is they may be afraid to publicly take a stand, let's say, on uh, a, a posting, on a, on a tweet, or whatever. So the issue is, when does that, again, we're sort of talking about sort of a, 
an equilibrium point? Yeah. At what point do citizens say this over, is enough over, of this? Overcome, yeah. And then then sort of suppress bad behavior. Yeah. And that's a real real task. So to be able to do that, then you're going to need uh, uh, in my view outside forces to do that. Right. And here where I feel that you can play a significant role. And that is not only making conditional, that the membership become conditional upon certain performance, social, economic, and, and including, including, of course, ending corruption in right. one form or another. But that is not something that can happen overnight, exactly right. what you're saying. This is a process. Right. Now, well, shouldn't the EU now understand that this is going to be a process? And in order to have that change, there is the, 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 the social media, mm -hmm. which is very important. It's exactly what you're saying. It's very important because they're watching, they're seeing, mm -hmm. they're learning. The possibilities are there, mm -hmm. but it is not automatically can happen in their own country. So to move the process forward, you're going to need an external force, mm -hmm. perhaps, because it's not coming from the local government. Right. And here, where the United, I feel that in the EU, it's not enough to tell them what you have to correct your way. Not enough to tell them, you know, this is how you practice businesses, you have to do this up. But actually take a more active role in doing what we are, you are suggesting, starting with you. That is, say to them, you have to do A, B, C, and D to accelerate mm -hmm. the process of mm -hmm. your membership. But then you have that, a possibility. But on the other hand, you have Turkey who will capitalize on corruption mm -hmm. to get what they want to get. So does Russia. Right. So I, I guess what I what I'm what I what I hear in your voice and I think is in the, the back of your question is what can those EU nations basically do to sort of have the process move forward but not get taken advantage of. So the issue might be and and again I'm not an EU specialist, I want to make that clear, but perhaps um, limited engagement where they're not given full uh, EU participation, uh, but they're given sort of a partial process of engagement. And then depending upon them meeting certain benchmarks, that can be adjusted. But you know, there's, a, there's, there's gonna be a lot of concern, I would think, among EU countries about bringing in uh, nation states that don't meet sort of the, the standards the, of the rest right. of the EU. That's right. Uh, and also, also that don't necessarily hold the same political and world views as the EU. This is confounded a little bit because uh, the EU itself is sort of splintering in various ways with some countries going more politically right, yeah. some countries staying where they were, and maybe some going a little bit more to the left. But the rightward movement of many of these countries changes the dynamic as well. In other words, when the EU was much smaller, they were more unified. Now, you know, they have this concern about taking on sort of the economic burden, political burden, and so forth of other countries as they admit them, and at the same time looking over their shoulder and saying, well, we have Russia here that we might have to be concerned with, and where do they want to spend their energies and their resources? Um, mm -hmm. Is it a big enough um, bang for their buck to bring these countries like in the Balkans into the EU, or is it going to deplete their energies and their resources in a way that they need for other activities? And, and that's where part of that question about 
what is the political will, not just of the leaders in, let's say, the Balkans themselves, but the political will of the EU nations to want to sort of engage and take on responsibilities. I mean, and we just, we're seeing, and it's not part of this discussion really today, but, you know, the whole Brexit movement about countries yeah. wanting yeah. to leave the EU. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? And, 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 and part of that is because they don't want to have the responsibilities that the EU wants to have. So there, there, it's, it's not a yeah. static... This is solution. true, you know, except if the EU has, has a, a geostrategic interest mm -hmm. in trying to lure the Balkans into, into, into its own orbit. So they have that geostrategic interest right. to get them out of Turkey's domain mm -hmm. and as well as Russia. So they have vested interest in trying to do something about it. But I go back to your point, which is I think is very important. That is, there is no one leap mm -hmm. from being... Coming immediately, even if they make the necessary changes over time, they're still uh, st starting with the process of somewhat say association. Mm -hmm. You 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 need to reach to to become person associate member of mm -hmm. the EU, right. and to be able to do that, like I establish a sort of a process, mm -hmm. a grading process. You have to do this and this and this and this, and we're going to need to monitor. That is the only way you can affect to change within, because the government is a government. Right. You can, and they want to become a member of this, so you're establishing that kind of a grading. It's, just a like, it's like a carrot to bring uh, people it, along. Bring in, you know, if you do this, you're going to get this piece of carrot. If you do right. another, we're going to give you another carrot. Right. And if you do this, there's another carrot. So that's creating the inducement. On the one hand, with the government to government, and then also getting the youth. Right. The youth are really key. Is a key. And then yeah. that's the internal aspect. Yeah. Because ultimately, you know, those generations grow up, and it's part of their embedded knowledge and culture that they're going to take forward. Yeah. And even if they get confronted by their superior in the workplace, it says, no, you call Jonathan's nephew. They're going to know that that's the wrong thing to do. Exactly. Okay. So exactly. they may not be able to do anything about it, but eventually, if there's more professionalization, let's say in terms of public administrators or in terms of accountants or whatever, they're going to continue to get reinforcement in those good practices that's going to maybe serve them to the point where they become the supervisors rather than just the subordinates, and maybe then they can change things. Yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking you know, of a sort of three-strike approach, three-strike diplomacy. One, government to government. Mm -hmm. One is uh, NGOs to NGOs. That is focusing on these aspects, teaching, writing, mm -hmm. preaching, all of this. And then, of course, introducing particular curriculum into the schools mm -hmm. uh, and teaching, uh, teaching I think. Right. And say this is part of this carrot <laughs> situation. Right. You introduce this curriculum, you're going to get this in return. Which means now they need investment. The Balkans need money. They need they need investment. Turkey and Iran, Turkey and Russia are doing everything they can. They're, even if Turkey is broke financially right now, they're spending more money on the Balkans and and their own in Turkey's right. own development. So the, the, the third track is going to have to be better and more frequent investment of the EU into these countries. Right. And I'm not sure that is happening in the, the, to the extent that is necessary. 
Well, I would also, we don't disagree, first of all, but I would also suggest that part of this has to do with the cl economic climate that we're in, so that when, 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 when countries are not doing so well, uh, particularly if we go back to 2008, 2009, um, there was not going to be a lot of outreach of aid and programs to be able to support foreign uh, venues, okay? As economies get stronger and better, uh, then there's more money available to, to look at broader uh, activities. It, but I, let, me do, let me just no, no, also no, no, one, no, one I'm more point. Yeah. One more point is that there's also the sense of the political will to be more isolationist or to be more global. Okay, so maybe some countries, even if they're doing well, they don't want to sort of worry about other parts of the world unless they see a direct positive impact for themselves. So it's those sort of multiplicity of issues that come into play. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree with you. That is, sometimes they want their return to be quicker than sometimes they expect their return to be, mm -hmm. to come a little later, mm -hmm. you know. So that is, that is, that is the... The, the reality today. Um, so what what is the prospect as far as the Balkans is concerned from your, from your viewpoint? Well, I think that we're really looking at a situation that's a slow evolutionary change uh, that my sense is that, that just the process of globalization and increased communication is going to be something that ultimately is going to be influential in changing some of these practices. But I, I recall being on a, a plane flying back from that part of the world in which there was a young man, 27-year-old fellow who was sitting in the seat next to me. And I asked him what he was doing. He said he works for BMW and he's going to Germany to learn sort of how to use new equipment. And then he asked me what I'm doing there and I said, I'm there to present at a conference about corruption. And he looks at me and he smiles and he takes his two hands and he puts them together in a shaking motion. And he says, the name of his country, okay, which I won't use here, the name of his country and corruption, they are very good friends. Okay, <laughs> so, so the idea here is that we have to recognize that there are deep-seated bonds and traditions and, and, and activities that are not going to change overnight. And even when leaders commit to doing them, there's still going to be yeah. a lot of resistance of people that are still going to try and get around those rules. But over time, and that's the big issue, over time, some of these things will inevitably occur. The problem is, is that people want to be a little bit impatient and want it to happen on a three-year plan or a five-year plan. And sometimes those types of actions just don't work that way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, no, especially when you're talking about yeah. corruption. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, this is a long-term, it's going to require consistency and all the elements that you mentioned in the globalization, starting with the youth, uh, right. the EU. Uh, um, and so there's all of these elements has to be in play at the same time if we want to accelerate the process. Mm -hmm. One piece at a time is 
like it's gonna make some improvement, but it's gonna take decades, not years. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you so much. You know, your input was very, very important. Well, it's very wonderful great. to meet with you today. Thank you, thank you, Abs. Thank you for taking the yep. time. I really appreciate right. it. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.